Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the third episode of my Save Bet show. And it gives me an utmost pleasure, and it is my privilege and honor to have Judge Cheryl Moss as my guest today. Welcome, Judge. Welcome, Cheryl. Great to have you on the show. Hello. Hello, everyone. As uh, usual, let me kick this all off by introducing to those, I'm sure, unfortunate few who wouldn't have heard about Judge Moss. Judge Moss served on the bench for 20 years. In 2001, she was the first judge to implement problem gambling assessments in domestic relations cases, truly first of its kind. In November 2018, she became the first judge to preside over Nevada's first gambling treatment diversion court, and we will be talking a lot about this today. She also happens to be a member of quite a few bars in the United States, including Nevada, D.C., and Maryland, and she has a truly long-standing experience in this sector. And as a lot of you would have known, she is also of recent ESPN fame, thanks to our friend David Purden. Judge, welcome to the show once again, and let me kick it off by a question that does not necessarily have much to do with responsible gambling. We will get there later. We are both rather avid sporting fans, although we would very clearly disagree on our allegiance and loyalties. But how did you become a fan of sports? How did that happen? Oh, I've, I've become a fan of sports ever since I was a, a little, little kid. Uh, played sports, loved playing sports, particularly, well, in America, we call it soccer, but in Europe, we call it football. And I played um, indoor soccer, outdoor soccer, and I also watched a lot of sports growing up in the East Coast. Um, I was a baseball fan. I love the New York Yankees. It's still my favorite team. And then something happened along the way, Martin. I got married, and now I've become a big Pittsburgh fan. So by default, by marriage, I am now a big fan of all Pittsburgh teams. I'm sure we could be wasting a lot of time discussing the Patriots-Steelers rivalry, but let's not go there. <laughs> the question I would have for you in, in a similar vein is about what is actually, if I may put it that way, going through your head while watching any sport, because you happen to be a judge or, or a retired judge these days. So did you ever find yourself rather rooting for the zebras as opposed to one of your teams, because you could say that they are judges in their own right. Well, Martin, it must be the the judge DNA in me, because sometimes I would enjoy watching sports on TV and, and, and rooting for both teams. And what is wonderful about sports is it's to give us entertainment and to entertain the fans. And there was one time there was a, a World Cup I was watching, and maybe it was 1996, maybe. Uh, it was Spain and, and Netherlands, and I rooted for both teams. So every World Cup, I actually do pick a team that I like to support. Um, but that year, I picked both, to, both countries. And guess who ended up in the finals of the World Cup? <laughs> the two teams I picked. And so I was happy with either team that, that, that won it. I think it was Netherlands that won that year. 
I was actually, I believe it was Spain because Ned, the Netherlands um, are one of the unfortunate teams to never have won the World Cup, but let's wish them uh, the best. You're the of expert. Luck. Let's <laughs> wish must, them the best of luck going forward. <laughs> and I remember that because actually, to my utter shame, in light of what you have just said, I cheered for Spain in that game to utter dismay of quite a few Dutch lawyers I happen to have been working with oh. at that time. Of course, we have already read extensively touched upon the fact that you were a judge and uh, in my book, an extremely successful and innovative one. So perhaps, can you tell me what is it like being a judge? Uh, myself, I'm a UK qualifier solicitor and unless I'm mistaken, because uh, my qualification run will come to seven years this summer. So in theory, I could become a judge, but then uh, I would be slightly concerned that that may be rather counterproductive and put a shame to the profession. So in your experience, what it was like becoming and being a judge? Well, in my own unique experience, I had just graduated law school in Washington, D.C. I had a lot of job offers, but my mother asked me to come out to Las Vegas and, and move out to be near her. And I gave up my entire legal career in Washington, D.C. to come to Las Vegas in 1995. So I've lived here about 26 years. And when I first came out here, I mean, I didn't know anybody. And I knew I needed to take another bar exam and, and get a license so I can. Um, my goal was to, to have my own law practice and um, have a small law practice. And I did, and I was able to accomplish that. And then I, I, I ran it for three years until somebody asked me to run for election, to run for the seat. There was an open seat in uh, district court, family division. And um, it was me and, and four guys. And um, I, you know, had a low budget, but I, I just started campaigning. And that's how, how I became a judge. Um, it was... Uh, and being such a new lawyer as well, I mean, I my first bar was in 1994, and then now it's 2000. So six years as a lawyer, three of those, and only in Nevada and running a successful law practice. And then um, I became elected so young, very young, and that's why I've, I've after 20 years I'm I've retired at a very young age. So you asked me what it was like being a judge. Um, it was a big, big transition. I I always said. Being a judge is, is hard work, but a different kind of hard work than being an attorney. Um, there's a, a lot more reading involved and a lot more what change of, you know, the way of thinking and how to approach cases. And I think it was um, it was something I really, really enjoyed. And I, I liked because I, I preferred resolving cases than advocating uh, for one side or another. And so I really had a good knack for it. And my first year as a judge, I was kind of a deer in headlights. Uh, it was a very big learning curve, but um, I, I, you know, I stayed confident and I knew that I can get through, um, you know, these 20 years. It wasn't easy. I'll tell you that, Martin, just like, you know, doing the lawyering thing. Um, and because of me and a few others following me, they actually changed the law to have people practice for 10 years before they can become a judge here in, in Nevada, at, at the very least for a statewide position. But I, I'm proud to have. Um, accomplished all of that and, and been able to get through 20 years of, you know, roller coaster up and downs and difficult cases, easy cases, heart wrenching cases, emotional cases. 
and the rest is clearly history and as I've said so on behalf of the audience I hope I would say that you can most definitely be proud of your excellent record on the bench and I'm sure that they would have changed the rules only because nobody else could ever achieve the heights that you have achieved in your profession and that Thank actually you. is uh, an excellent segue into my next question because you were up there on the bench but if you were to step into the shoes of those bit defendants bit attorneys that were facing judge moss what do you think that felt like because in all honesty i reckon and feel free to disagree that a lot of people out there would get rather a distorted picture of idea of what court hearings are all about having watched way too many in particular american tv series that center around this topic but having experienced it myself i would suggest that the real life is very different but what do you reckon the people that were facing you and you just alluded to more straightforward cases difficult cases hard wrenching cases how did they feel like well as you know martin family court um is is very emotional and um i most of the time when they came into the courtroom they are sometimes feeling emotions of nervousness anxiety wondering what's going to happen next and um after 20 years i've learned that the, the the best way to resolve things for those people are to bring closure and to bring it about much quicker than have to keep waiting for the next court date and the next court date and then getting to trial and so um i think that's the the one thing i learned in 20 years is be more efficient um you know make the best decisions that you can and try to and try to bring closure sometimes and you know with two sides being a lawyer martin that um you know the one one party may not be happy with the judge's decision the other party might be happy with it um but either way they know that a decision has occurred and you know an issue would be closed out and and things resolved I can't agree more and I suppose or I would suggest the worst kind of cases in terms of decisions might be those where neither party is actually happy with the outcome and I believe that speaks to your point about having a closure at the end ideally for everybody involved especially in a setting such as a family court uh, we will come on to it very very shortly gambling treatment courts and the gambling treatment courts are clearly a true passion of yours unfortunately owing to the pandemic we haven't yet had the pleasure to meet face to face and i'm sure that with the pandemic petering out we will be able to rectify that in a foreseeable future but i've had a number of very kind and also productive discussions with you digitally and i could already from those discussions fathom that 
that passion, but also that grit and hard work that's gone into your gambling treatment court. So I would absolutely love if you could tell me and the audience more about it and how it works. And for those hopefully uninitiated few who would have never heard about it, what it is. Well, Martin, if you can spare me a few minutes, uh, I will try to briefly summarize what gambling treatment diversion court is. And I'll refer to it as GTDC because it's shorter. Um, I'm a family court judge. However, I take referrals from our criminal court judges to do the gambling treatment diversion court cases. And so when a person ends up um, before a criminal court judge after having committed a crime, that was done in furtherance of a gambling addiction. And it can't be a crime against a child, a crime of violence of that, things of that sort. Then they would end up before the criminal court judge who would be told, I suppose, by the defense attorney, uh, my client has a gambling addiction and he committed this crime. Typically it could be theft or fraud or embezzlement. Um, and he did it because he had a gambling addiction. And we would like to elect uh, to go to GTDC court. So the criminal judge criminal judge would hold a an eligibility hearing is what we call it to see if they're eligible. And because we don't want just people saying, oh, I have a gambling addiction, send me to Judge Moss's court and they get a get out of jail free card. And that's not how it works. In the eligibility hearing, we would hear expert reports uh, or hear expert testimony or submit reports from somebody who would do an assessment to see yes, this person truly has a gambling disorder and that likely that the crimes that he committed, he or she committed, um, was due to a gambling addiction. And the judge would hear all of that uh, evidence. And then if they deem that the, it was committed because of a gambling addiction, and typically these people have never been arrested before in their whole life. And it's, a, it's their first offense, but it's charged as a felony which is a very serious crime. And if the judge deems they're eligible, the judge would sign a court order saying, I hereby um, transfer your case to Judge Moss's GTDC court. And then from there, they would have their first appearance with me and we would take it from there. Now, once they appear into my courtroom, we have our introductions. I tell them what our program requirements are. Um, they have to sign paperwork. It's, 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 it is a process, not just you just end up in my courtroom and then just start going to court. Um, we uh, have them sign a gambler's contract. They have to be transparent. We will have access to all of their financial records. We will have the, the authority to do location monitoring to make sure here in Las Vegas, they don't go to the strip or any um, uh, gaming sites, uh, obviously. And there, there, there might be, then we could talk about those things about the locations, you know, uh, why did you, you know, go to a local uh, casino or were you there? Why were you across the street? Were you just getting gas or why did you stay there for five minutes versus, you know, five hours? Um, we could tell those things. But financial monitoring and we also do drug testing. We um, they um, unless it's an approved medication, um, their usual prescriptions, they cannot take illegal substances. They have to be drug free. And um, and so drug testing even weekly, we start them out weekly is a part of it. Even though they have no drug history, every person usually has to go through the drug testing after they've never even used drugs before. Um, 
drug monitoring, financial monitoring. They have to get stable. They have to get a job. And then usually more later on in the end, we start talking about the restitution. And with the restitution, uh, understand that um, sometimes there is no restitution. Um, sometimes they gambled away all of their money or their family money. But sometimes there is a victim, and that could be a former employer, a business, even including, and I've had cases where the casinos were the victims um, uh, because the person was a casino employee who had access to funds and money. And now, of course, um, they can't work in a casino anymore, but they have to pay back the restitution to their former employer. So we do that and we have to um, ensure that those protocols will be in place. And people are now wondering when, as they, as I'm talking about the money and the restitution, what if they owe a very large amount? I mean, I've had cases where it's over $500,000. Um, some maybe just $1,000. Some could be $30,000, $40,000. But we, the, the law says, according to how I run my court, is they have to pay the restitution. Yes, they have to repay all of the restitution. But the program can only last up to no more than 36 months. And so we would um, have them either do civil confession judgments and have them agree voluntarily to continue paying once they graduate from the program and that they are in recovery. It is part of their recovery to continue to make those payments. Um, but that is sort of an over overbroad view of what we do. There's um, a lot more details behind that, but basically um, it's accountability to the court. It's it's basically monitoring, and it's and they had to come see me every other Friday, every two weeks, and if they were doing much better they don't have to come maybe once a month or once every other month but every every two weeks is generally how we would monitor them as to make sure that they are completing all of the court requirements staying in perfect compliance and not violating any of our program's rules i have to say and thanks for that overview that you were not only a brilliant judge but you would have also been a fantastic attorney because you have just preempted or managed to preempt all the questions that I would have had oh, about the GTDC. Clearly a very commendable and very needed effort. Perhaps we may even go as far as calling it a conscience of the gambling, gambling industry. And I'm hearing that now you're in the throes of expanding the original Nevada one from the Silver State of Nevada to the Garden State of New Jersey. I am indeed, and I've been talking to other states as well, Martin. I think what's the best to understand about why now in my retirement I am pursuing these projects is because why do states need gambling courts? And you know how is that gonna impact also on the gaming industry? Gambling courts save, not only save lives, but they do save money. They save a lot of money. Uh, let's talk numbers here. In Nevada, it costs, uh, approximately on average $24,000 a year to incarcerate someone. And there is no gambling treatment available uh, to a person with a gambling disorder in prison. And so they would just be doing their time, not paying back their restitution, and they'll have to deal with other things once they uh, finish out their sentences. Um, and let's compare that to New Jersey, which is a very densely populated state. Um, there are 
approaching 3 million just in the city of Las Vegas here. Uh, the state of New Jersey is tiny compared to Nevada, but they have 8 million people um, in that state. And a lot of the concentration of gambling, as you know, is in Atlantic City, but it, you can go from one, the top end of New Jersey or the bottom end and make it to Atlantic City within a span of three hours, maybe by car. And so $61,000 a year is the number in New Jersey to, on average to house somebody in prison. And so if you, if you put a gambler in there, committed a crime and a felony can run maybe four to 10 years, maybe they'll get out in two thirds of the time. Uh, I'm not good with math. That's why we became lawyers, Martin, but two thirds of four years minimum, um, two plus years, maybe they'll get out. But they've done, nothing has been accomplished. The victim hasn't gotten their restitution and who had to pay to house that person, to pay for their uh, meals and their clothing and in prison, 61,000 a year times you know, two plus, almost three years is a lot. That's 180,000 almost. That's a lot of money for the state of New Jersey. And, and uh, if we can get them into treatment, then we can talk about the recidivism rate going lower. We hopefully, they will get treatment for their gambling addiction. They won't go back to um, committing crimes, hopefully. And um, for those who are severe, have this severe gambling disorder, that's why they end up in GTDC court. Uh, they, uh, abstinence is gonna be the most important thing as part of their recovery. They won't be able to gamble. And you know, Martin, that the nationwide, the rate is about, um, I believe 5%, um, and it could be lower, but I know it's 6% in Nevada alone because we have, we're the gaming capital, maybe not so anymore after looking at New Jersey and Pennsylvania's numbers, but um, the, the percentage obviously might be small, but every life matters. Every, you know, every life matters and every life that we can save and we can help um it's 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 the human aspect of it martin um i don't you know maybe um we don't see that working in 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 the gaming industry but there are people in the gaming industry who's probably had family members who are affected by a gambling addiction i know of people i mean uh in higher up in the gaming industry that have had gambling addictions and are in recovery um some do actually maybe still work in, in the industry that they work with, but it's how they do their recovery and it's how they individually um, stay healthy with their recovery. But there are gamblers who are in prison that can't see their families. There are gamblers who, um, even if they didn't go to prison and a judge had given them probation, you know, uh, before we even had gambling courts, they go home at night and they cry because their kids aren't talking to them. Their mother and father are not talking to them. Their family just basically shut them out because it's very hard sometimes for them to forgive, you know, what they did. But um, and they it's part of their recovery also to acknowledge, take responsibility, not blame anybody. Um, but it also has to speak to the fact that it is a disease. They just don't go out, you know, and just gamble a million dollars in a matter of seven months. I've seen cases like that. How could they do that? How could they possibly do that if they're only making, let's say, $50,000 a year? Um, that, I mean, the addiction consumes the person. 
And if you start out with that understanding that it is a disease, then you will understand, you know, the human aspects of it and how it can destroy families and destroy people. And I don't think the, the gaming industry obviously would, you know, would, would obviously support that. I think they, that's why I'm very proud that the gaming industry is doing things to do uh, programs just as you, what you've done, Martin, you know, with responsible gaming and make sure it's just an, a form of entertainment and not something that will affect somebody. The, those few, not everybody, a lot of people will go in and enjoy it. There are a lot of people that can go into a casino and enjoy that, you know, the gambling, um, but they do gamble responsibly. They know they set limits, and but for some people, they can't control it. And that's a very few percentage, but that percentage does matter. And that's why I, I you know, I pushed for the gambling courts and I was very fortunate to be able to create the first one in, in Las Vegas. And uh, after I retired last January, 2021, it's still going strong and they still have nine participants. It's a small number, but every every num every one counts. Absolutely, in my view, this is absolutely amazing. And thanks for bringing up the human aspect of all our efforts and the fact that uh, there is, of course, a large majority of those that enjoy themselves reasonably and responsibly while gambling. But at the same time, we do have, I would suggest, a collective responsibility to help those who are not that lucky. And I suppose every now and then we might to, we might fail to see the wood represented by the overall picture for the trees of the individual programs. And we, of course, talk about technology in this space a lot, and that's a great tool in itself. But indeed, just like you, I would lay a lot of emphasis on the fact that ultimately we are talking about human beings that in this case require a lot of help, which is yet another, going back to my previous point about your preempting my questions, great segue into my next one. It's I believe very difficult to define what responsible gambling actually is. But if you were to give me a few thoughts about what is the end game here, what are we all trying to achieve when we're being part of the of the gambling treatment aversion courts, when we are launching responsible gambling programs? What is in your view what is meant to be the end game here? Yeah, there's seven casinos in Pennsylvania. Um, they're becoming like Las Vegas style casinos. The Borgata, I think, was the very first one, maybe. Um, and with all that entertainment and all that, you're gonna, you're, we're going to have to um, be wary. And it's the same message my mom said in the late '70s, early '80s. Uh, legalization of casino gaming is coming to New Jersey. And there's going to be gambling addiction um, problems, and we need to take care of that. We're not um, against casinos, but we want to help those that um, are going to be afflicted with that disorder. And so I think we need to kind of close the gap between the treatment uh, and funding and be able to fund the treatment for those to, to do that and and to also to coexist and um, and 
open up lines of communications uh, between those that are very vocal about, uh, you know, uh, casinos are, are harmful versus on the other end of the spectrum, obviously. And we need to find ways to, to bring that gap closer. And there is a gap, but they also have to find a tunnel, a tunnel to open the lines of communication. And I think with me being a judge who doesn't, you know, I don't work for the gaming industry and I don't work for the treatment world. I think I um, would hopefully be able to, you know, help dig that tunnel to create the the lines of communication uh, in terms of what can we do to help each other um, and how can we continue it. I am excited. I'm I'm actually excited to see all these new casinos, you know, popping up and all the the sports and the online betting. Um, but we also have to be mindful and and careful of um, how that kind of exposure um, uh, is can can lead some to to um, you know, either develop a gambling addiction or de- gambling disorder, um, or find ways to better treat them. Also, all, to kind of um, head it off. And so I, I love what you're doing in terms of the programs that you're doing in terms of uh, prevention and education, um, I think is very key in, in terms of um, how we're going to make the public aware of that. And of course, the youth, you have to think about the youth uh, and other vulnerable populations, the elderly, ensure that w- with kids that the, you know, they're exposed to uh, gaming and gambling that, that they, they learn about that education. Um, they're, they're seeing it a lot on TV commercials, but look at what happened with, you know, they don't have cigarette commercials anymore, obviously, but with the gaming, obviously we wanna make it fun and entertaining, but I want to, being a family court judge, I also wanna send that message to all parents out there, and that's to ensure that the information that your children are exposed to, that they are taught properly in terms of what it means and when i was growing up you had to be 21 it's still 21 you know when i growing up in new jersey i'm from new jersey and going to a casino and you know how they they make sure they check your age but i know my i was always taught that you know it's it's for adults and then you have to it's a form of entertainment my parents were always very careful about that Uh, let's be realistic my you know my dad gambled (laughs) he gambled for fun and you know does the gambling court judge gamble I'm like, well, yeah, I think maybe when I go in for research purposes, I want to see how the latest machines work. You know, it's just my usual uh, drop a little money in there and then see how the the lights and the sounds work. And um, but it's been a while. I haven't been to Christina a while with COVID. It's it's been it's been tough, Martin. But yeah, I've gone in. I've gone in casinos with my mom. (laughs) I would say we would go in there and say, oh, look, look at the new the new slot machine or look at they changed their. You smell something different in the in the atmosphere. It smells like it makes you feel good or whatever the the, the aromatherapy that they have in there. And I, I like to study a lot of that stuff. But send the message that um, we want we need to be. If you're going to advertise, make sure it's advertised maybe responsibly and not uh, give people too much hope. You know, or that that this is going to be like a, a big jackpot, big win or anything. But just I I would think that it doesn't give that sense of too much overdone. And I, I like that still, we should continue to have the 1-800-GAMBLER, you know, message at the bottom or at the end. I know, I know that, you know, your company does that. We have, they have these messages on respons- responsible gambling 
and we need to continue more to look more into that. So coexist, close the gap, build a tunnel, open up, let you know, open up the lines of communication, and um, maybe we can continue to do that because you know you're in the UK, Martin, and you see what's kind of happening with all the review going on in the UK and how they're going to make things better. And I'm following that, and I love seeing what what you know what the some of the programs that they're doing there and um, I, I tend to agree with that you know with the affordability checks and now banking industry getting involved and I think that that's the main idea that I'm the main thing I'm hearing right now and I think it's it's a very viable solution to do affordability checks and with the technology that you were talking about um, we can feed that in and there's a lot of algorithm uses um, that the casinos are um, in the casino industry, I think we could turn some of the algorithm uses also to study um, responsible. I mean, the, the study the, the the prevalence of disordered gambling or problem gambling, and turn those algorithms into how to identify them and then and, and not uh, prolong anything in terms of if these people need to get help. So we need to get them out of a casino basically, and yeah, get them help, and they should you know, exclude themselves and exclusion programs also do work. Um, I've seen studies on that. They they do have some bit of success. Yeah, that's my message. Very, very voice birds and a very spot on message indeed. And hopefully me saying that doesn't sound patronizing and I'm in no position to be patronizing somebody <laughs> like Judge Cheryl Moss. Indeed, a couple of new properties coming to the Strip in a foreseeable future. Last time I checked, the good old Caesars was still there and they were very lucky to have had you all those years ago when you were taking the bar exam. To wrap it all up, if I may, my usual rather unfair question, in, in particular as regards uh, the short span of time that I'm about to give you to Give our audience your final key message if you were to be a judge, of course, deliberate on today's podcast. If you have 60 seconds to give the audience the key message that you would really like them to take away, then please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Martin. Well, right now, my current passion is gambling treatment diversion courts. And so there is a legislative bill going on in New Jersey. So keep keep a lookout for that. I think that there's a good chance we might get gambling courts in New Jersey and we'll move on maybe to Pennsylvania and other states. Um, my message to you is that gambling treatment diversion courts do work and they do save lives and they save taxpayer money. And so that's the simple message I have. Why have gambling courts? Because they save lives and they save families. And when you save a life, it, it it's a good feeling. You know, that's all I do. It's part of my community service, my public service. And although I'm retired now, I feel that my mission right now is to um, train new judges and if they're going to have gambling courts there. And so if it happens, um, I would be uh, thrilled to do that and provide that part of education. And I think being a 20-year judge and being a retired person now, um, that's what we do when we <laughs> retire. We pursue these projects and then pass on our, our knowledge. I have no regrets about the 20 years that I did as a family court judge. It was a lot of hard work and so was gambling treatment court. It was, it was a lot of hard work to create it and run it for two years. And as I look back on it, I'm 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 kind of proud of what I did and 
I want to be able to share my knowledge with the rest of the world. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. And we're very proud of you and very proud of your work, ladies and gentlemen. This is the way too humble and at the same time very impressive Judge Cheryl Moss. My name is Martin Lechka and this was the third episode of my Save Bet Show. See you next time.